should be the owner and controller of your own digital identity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Bruce Esposito. He is from One Identity, and we're going to be talking about digital identities and what they could mean for privacy. So who's got the advantage in cybersecurity, the attacker or the defender? Intelligent people differ on this, but the conventional wisdom is that the advantage goes to the attacker. But why is this? Stay with us and we'll have some insights from our sponsor, Know Before, that put it into perspective. Joe, I am going to kick things off for us this week. Last year, back in August, we talked about a story where there were claims that someone was using deepfake audio to impersonate a CEO and get a company to transfer money. Yes, and you were dubious of that claim. I was, and for good reason. And in that case, uh, I, I believe an employee actually transferred nearly a quarter million dollars. Yeah, a lot of money. Yeah. The insurance company claimed that it was a deep fake, but you and I dug into it a little deeper and really found that there really wasn't a whole lot to back up that claim that there was a deep fake. It, it, we, and I think the conclusion that we came to was that it was probably just somebody doing an impersonation, which was easier. There were a lot of reasons why it was easier to just try to impersonate someone yes. than do a deep fake, especially, uh, well, gosh, nearly a year ago now. So this story came by just recently. This is over on uh, the Motherboard website, and it's titled, Listen to this deep fake audio impersonating a CEO in brazen fraud attempt. And it appears as though we've got a case here where someone did actually try to spin up a deep fake. And in this case, they actually got a sample of the voicemail that was left. Uh, I guess before we go any farther, let's uh, listen to that brief little sample here. Uh, Pedro, this is and I need your immediate assistance to finalize an urgent business deal. That sounds pretty close, Dave. <laughs> it's not it's not bad. Right. Uh I mean it's not blatant. It doesn't sound like Mr. Roboto or something, you know, or, or <laughs> you know, an old an old 80s video game or something. It's not it's not overtly synthesized. It does sound a little stilted though. I agree. I, I need your I immediate assistance. Right. And in this case, the employee who received the voicemail recognized that there was something up. He didn't fall for it. He contacted the security folks at his company. They contacted a security firm who investigated. And sure enough, it turns out that it was a deep fake. And, and the, the security firm actually did some forensic stuff on the audio files. And there were some telltale signs that this was a, a processed file. Right. Now, it's interesting to me how far this stuff has come in the past year or so. Yeah. I was recently looking at a tool for transcription that's available uh, and quite popular with podcasters these days. And this tool allows you to load in an audio file. It'll automatically transcribe the audio. So basically what you end up with is what looks like a, a file in a text editor, but you can go in and edit that text file and it automatically edits the audio file as well. Really? Uh, which, 
Yeah, which is interesting and handy. So for cutting and pasting things, moving things around, getting rid of extraneous stuff, that's one thing. But what this can also do is it can analyze the audio and you can replace words. Hmm. So, for example, if I said, hey, Joe, the sky is plaid, uh, and you wanted to go in and say, have me say the sky is blue, right. you could cut out the word plaid, put in the word blue, and it would put the word blue in in my voice. Amazing. And I have – it is absolutely convincing. There, for single word replacements like that, completely compelling. There's there's no reason to think that there's anything wrong. So my point being that this technology has come a long way even in the past year, and yep. it's also readily available. Not hard to get your hands on these days. So interesting to see that in this case, these bad guys – it looks like they use this as an attempt to sort of set the hook, right? It just doesn't look like this was their end game. They were using this to try to get an employee to engage, to continue the conversation, to contact them, to, to right. reach out. Okay, so this was just the tip of the spear, as it were. Correct. And in this case, they were not successful, and the employee did the right thing, contacted security, didn't fall for it, just had a sense that something wasn't quite right. And so the scammers did not get what they were after. But I think it's a it's an interesting example of how things are moving along with this technology. And where we were skeptical a year ago, it seems as though in this case, it, it really did happen. Yeah. Wasn't the story from a year ago about a conversation on the phone? Yes. Not a, not a voicemail? Correct. I, I still Correct. don't know if that's going to be easy to do because you're you're going to have to write your response into something that's going to have to generate the voice and how you're going to do that on the fly, I don't know. I mean, it's it's yeah. certainly it's certainly simple to do a deep fake for a voicemail message and then there's a couple of ways you can get that left in someone's voicemail. You can either uh, just call the number and leave it, right? That's the simplest. Right. Uh, but maybe if I have access to the voicemail system back end, I can just upload the file. Yeah. But I think we're still a couple of years away from conversational deepfakes. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope so. Uh, but interesting development nonetheless. Uh, so that's my story this week. Of course, we'll have a link for that in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story this week comes from Axe Sharma over at Bleepy Computer. And we'll put a link in the show notes. But he has a story about an interesting new phishing campaign. The emails seem to come from a domain called servicedesk.com. And the email headers, if you examine the headers, seem to indicate this is correct. So in an email header, I'm going to get a little bit technical down in the weeds here. So if the listeners who are non-technical can bear with me. In email headers, there are fields called received from fields, and they will have a domain and an IP address of where that email was received. And you will see a chain of these. And one of the ways you test for spam and to see if a, an email has been spoofed from a domain is to check and make sure that the reply path or the reported sender of the email, the, re the reply to address domain, matches the very last or first, depending on how you read it, received from field in the header. And that is the case here. And they are both coming from a domain called servicedesk.com. Axe thinks that there are two possibilities here. Either servicedesk.com has been compromised or the attackers are injecting the received from record on an email server they control. Because if you control an email server, then you can just spoof that record, 
right? You can say, oh yeah, I received this from servicedesk.com. Here's an email. And that's a great way to get through a lot of these spam filters. I'm fairly certain it's the second part. And Zanax is also certain of that as well. He, he says that's what he thinks has happened. But uh, one of the reasons is, and and he points this out in the article, is there there are no DMARC records for servicedesk.com. And we've talked about DMARC records. They're a way for receiving uh, email server to validate that the email did in fact come from the domain that's claiming to have sent it. And hmm. servicedesk.com doesn't have any of that set up on it. I don't think that service desk has been compromised because I, I, I doubt there's any kind of email infrastructure there. And it's a lot of effort to break in there and then set up your own email infrastructure. So I'm sure that what they're doing is they're just using a middleman and saying it's come from servicedesk.com and inserted that record into the headers. Anyway, now on to the non-technical part of it. <laughs> <laughs> the the social engineering portion of it. The email yeah. is a spam quarantine message. Do you get these? Yes. Uh, we get them yes. frequently. And mm-hmm. let me read the text of this email as it comes in. Uh, it says, you have six undelivered emails clustered on your cloud. And the six is in brackets, curly braces. Because your email storage capacity is full and awaiting approval from you to deliver messages and restore cloud storage, be notified this might make incoming messages bounce back or lose your important emails. Please follow the instructions to resolve issue and release the pending messages to your inbox. Okay, so obviously there's a lot of bad English in here, which is a telltale sign, right? Yeah. It's got two links there that say release messages and clean up cloud. And guess what happens if you click on either one of those? (laughs) You go to a landing page. Now, these landing pages, however, are set up on either a Microsoft or an IBM cloud service. They're using Mm. the IBM cloud hosting or Microsoft Azure or Microsoft Dynamics. And in the case of Azure or IBM, they automatically get free SSL certificates that contain these companies' names. So there's a little more legitimacy to it. Here's actually a very clever part of it. If you go to the landing page and you enter an email address and then you type in a password like test, it says wrong password Hmm. because that's exactly what a cloud service would say if you entered a password test. These guys have actually put password requirements on their phishing page to weed out people who are testing the phishing page. <laughs> it's pretty clever. Once you enter your, your actual email and password address, you're you're done. That's it. They've got you. They show you a page that says your account has been up- updated successfully and they're redirecting you and then they send you back to your company's webpage, right? Uh, the domain that is at the end of your email address. I see. Yeah, what strikes me about this is how vanilla it is. Like you said, you, you know, this is the kind of thing it's common to receive. It is. I get these two or three times a week and I just ignore them. One of the things that it's interesting to note is when you have a quarantine system like this, if you don't respond, your your quarantine box doesn't fill up. It's just after 14 days, the messages are deleted. The attackers are doing the same old tricks where they're saying, hey, uh, if you don't get to your email quickly, you're not going to be able to send or receive emails. You're going to miss important emails. And that would be bad, of course. Nobody wants to miss important emails. So they're using that threat of missing emails to get you to click on the links. Right. All right. Well, that is an interesting one. Uh, mul- multiple levels to that one. Yeah, multiple lots of layers. Yeah, parts in this one. I like it. Yeah. And uh, as always, we'll have a link to that one in the show notes as well. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, this catch of the day comes from Monica. She played dumb with a cash app scammer for three days. 
<laughs> Does Monica need a hobby? <laughs> she uh, she posted this on Reddit, and I reached out to her. It's pretty it's pretty good. So I'll be Monica, Dave, and then you can be the scammer. But the scammer starts off by sending a congratulations to the lucky winners. The first fifty people to comment cash will earn a payment of six hundred to thirty six hundred dollars before midnight. Monica recognized immediately this was a scam and decided she was going to play along. And she said, "LOL, okay, cash. What now?" So the scammer replies, uh, do you have cash app? Yep. Are you going to send me $600 to $3,600 without me having to do anything? Send your cash tag with email. How much you need? $3,600 would be great, but beggars can't be choosers. Hold on. Okay. Payment sent. So Monica sends back two pictures, one that actually came from Cash App and one that came from the scammer, whose address is cashapp1206 and a bunch of other numbers at gmail.com. And Monica goes, uh, why does the email not come from Cash App's verified source? Uh, you have to pay for the clearance fee before your money is available in your Cash App. Huh. It does show pending in my Cash App, though. Check your email. Yeah, Cash App says with pending payment, it'll show in your app feed for the next steps. Let me see if I can find a step-by-step video to help me. I don't use Cash App a lot. Does this look right? And she sends a a video of uh, Cash App clearance fee, and it says, what is a Cash App clearance fee scam? You can borrow from someone and pay back when you get your money available in your Cash App. Okay, could I borrow it from you? I don't have the money, hence needing it. I could pay you back right away when I get the cash app. I'll even double it. Eat against the rules and regulations. How so? It wouldn't be tied to you, as the cash app tag it originated from is Michael something. Or could you take the fee out of the money and just send me $3,600 minus $150? And then she requests $2,500 from him. I just requested $2,500 from him. When it's done, this way, cash says they won't have a clearance fee. You have to pay for the clearance fee before your money is available in your cash app. And then she sends him a a picture of, uh, (laughs) she Googled cash app fees. It says cash app doesn't charge a fee to send a request to receive money. Why? It says it doesn't have fees. There's a fee to use a credit card. Cash app charges 3% of the transaction to send money via linked credit card. This is a fairly standard fee compared with other money transfer apps. Venmo, for example, charges 3% to send money with a linked credit card. To avoid this fee altogether, use your linked bank account or funds in your cash app account to send money. $3,600 times 3% is $108 anyway, if Michael is sending from a credit card, in which case he'd get charged at that point of sending not me receiving. And then she shows a picture that says the request would exceed the funding limit that the scammer has. And he says it doesn't look like he could send it anyway. It's government's money. Which government's? If you don't believe me, please leave me alone, okay? I just want to make sure this isn't a scam. $150 is a lot of money for someone just to send to a stranger. Same to me. I pay for clearance fee. Did you get your money? I swear to God, it's real and legit. Okay. Do you have your transaction records with Cash App? Yes, but I have deleted it. Leave me alone, okay? (laughs) So we're going to go ahead and jump on to day three. All right, so I'm going to pick up here uh, as the scammer who's still trying to to make his case to Monica. Right. Uh, And he says this. But it's real and legit. You keep saying that, but offer no legal proof, screenshots of deposit, or anyone to talk to. Should I send you the agent link? Sure. Okay, hold on. Here is the agent link. And it's a Facebook page to Agent Willie. So I don't want to alarm you, but I think Agent Willie is a narc. His Facebook profile is just screenshots of official things. 
but he still has his phone service and time at the top. What kind of crap scammer doesn't know how to crop those out? Or better yet, just save the picture and upload it as their own. And the whole home care, your tag here, doesn't he know he's supposed to actually put something in the tagline area? I mean, I could message him and waste his time like I'm doing to you, but I have a real job to get to. As fun as this is, and as entertaining as this conversation is because it's being shared on Reddit, I just don't have the energy to talk to another person with bad grammar. That means you don't believe me. You are correct. After two whole days, I agree with you. Bye. Do not text me again, okay? Okay, just don't message me tomorrow morning like the last two, even though you said, leave me alone. Yes, bye. But if you believe me, you can message me, or you want to pay for the clearance fee, message me, okay? Our thanks to uh, Monica for her willingness to share that with us. Uh, thanks to you, Joe, for hunting that one down. That was a, a lot of fun. Yep. That is our catch of the day. Now let's return to our sponsor's question about the attacker's advantage. Why do the experts think this is so? It's not like a military operation where the defender is thought to have most of the advantages. In cyberspace, the attacker can just keep trying and probing at low risk and low cost, and the attacker only has to be successful once. And as No Before points out, email filters designed to keep malicious spam out have a failure rate of over 10%. That sounds pretty good. Who wouldn't want to bat nearly 900? But this isn't baseball. If your technical defenses fail in one out of ten tries, you're out of luck and maybe out of business. The last line of defense is your human firewall. You can test that firewall with NoBefore's free phishing test, which you can order up at nobefore.com slash fishtest. That's K-N-O-W-B-E, the number four, dot com slash fishtest. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Bruce Esposito. He is from One Identity. And our conversation focused on digital identities and the implications that they could have for privacy. Here's my conversation with Bruce Esposito. A digital identity is a way to store basic information about yourself digitally. Uh, they can be used by applications, used online. And reliably, something that's trustworthy, that's reliable, that we know that the information in there is accurate. And so where do we stand these days when it comes to digital identity in terms of their availability and how much people are using them? We have too many digital identities and everybody's being forced to use them, right? So everything (laughs) from, uh, you know, Facebook and social media to your email address to pretty much every bit of banking now, online banking. and, And everything we do in society now involves some level of a digital identity. Uh, to prove who we are. The problem is there is no one trustworthy one. We just have lots of them, depending on who we're talking to. Yeah, you know, and and I remember thinking back years ago when uh, Facebook was on the rise, and and they were one of the the early companies to say, hey, let us take care of your online identity. You know, use us to sign into many different things. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, this is great. This would be very convenient, and all this could be managed from one place. But, of course, over time, for me personally, Facebook wasn't a company that I felt like I could trust anymore. Yeah, well, and then, of course, there's Cambridge Analytica and that whole scandal that came out of all the information they were, you know, harvesting from Facebook and then using it in elections. Right. People being concerned about that. So thank right. goodness Facebook isn't our centralized digital identity. 
who could step up and provide that? Who would be the best choice for that? Should it be a private company? Is it something the government should provide for us? No, it's easier than that. It's you. That's hmm. the idea of a self-sovereign identity. That's where we have to get to. We're not there today, but get to the point of you should be the owner and controller of your own digital identity. Well, take me through how something like that could work. There's lots of technologies. The One of the big ones that seems to be that we could use to provide a basis for it is this idea of blockchain right, being used in the financial sector. It's a decentralized way to store digital information. That There's no one central body that owns that information, right? but yet it's considered reliable. You have its own digital identity in which trustworthy sources can verify different aspects of it. So there may still be a, a government source that comes in there and verifies that you are Bruce Esposito and here's your birthday or here's your social security number. And different reliable sources would verify different pieces of digital information, but you are the one that own that in your own little digital wallet and you choose when to share that reliable information with other people instead of having one source have to maintain all that information. Let's walk through an example together. I mean, would it be a different situation, for example, if I you know, stopped in uh, to buy a, a six-pack of beer on the way uh, home versus uh, visiting my doctor, for example? Absolutely. That, that's exactly the idea, right? It depends on the information you want to share. That's the hmm. idea that it's contextual, right? You don't give all your information to anybody whenever they ask, right? A healthcare provider might need to know your sex and weight, but uh, a retailer does not necessarily need to know that. They may want to, but they don't. That's a key example of where you have to be able to control your own identity and when and how that information is used. And so how do we protect the legitimacy of that information? How do we make sure that, that I'm not monkeying around with it myself? Well, that's where you get in this idea of, of blockchain, right? That becomes a way to establish an identity that you own. And then we tie to that identity that you own, that's trustworthy, that's in your little digital wallet, and that you tie bits of information to that that are signed by other sources. So in order to be able to use it, there's several things you need to have. I need to have one, my own digital identity. I have to have a wallet that's trustworthy, and I have to have information that's signed by other, other trustworthy sources. And that information, when presented together, allows a third party to say, yeah, I know that's Bruce. The information he's presenting me is accurate because I also trust this other source. And that's all done through the idea of digital certificates and cryptography that we've been using for decades in building that around digital identities. How do we uh, protect this notion of you know the haves and the have-nots? If someone uh, perhaps can't afford to have a mobile device, how would they not be left out of something like this? Well, that's a big factor that comes into play. The reality of it is that's a very, very small population and it's quickly going away. But hmm. the point of it is it has been used. I'll give you an example to where that was a real problem. Uh, in the United States, not so much, but in the United Nations and the areas that they support, it is a problem. One was recently the United Nations World Food Program that controlled providing support for Syrian refugees. These refugees were coming in the refugee camps. They had no identities. They had no digital identities, much less any paper identities. And so right. they established a system using blockchain technology to assign a digital identity to each person and with their biometrics, like their fingerprint. And so now they could go shop at the camp store and use their fingerprint to prove who they are, and they use blockchain as their uh, wallet that they could assign money on a weekly basis to that person and keep track of every transaction when they would use money. Nobody could steal it from them. Nobody could claim it was theirs because it was all tied back to a, a physical biometric and a digital signature that was used in the blockchain. And so that enabled people to utilize this information without necessarily even having a cell phone. 
Now, who is on the leading edge of these sorts of things? If somebody wants to to dip their toe in this, to, to start down this path, what options are available? Well, I don't think there's any one organization that's really on the leading edge. You have all the major identity providers in this space that are looking at it, but this is a really new kind of technology. So more at this point, it's a lot of strategists and people with different companies talking about it. Uh, at One Identity, this is a big part of what we talk about in enabling digital identities for enterprises. But I don't think there is a single leading edge. What's being done is a lot of government agencies are looking at it from different perspectives. A lot of businesses are looking at it from different perspectives. But everybody's trying to figure out how can we utilize this technology to make it better for our customers, whether they're citizens or or, or actual uh, other companies, to be able to take this technology forward and use it forward. Are there frameworks that are being proposed? Are, are there uh, ways to ensure interoperability? There are. There are several organizations that are trying to do this. There's this idea of self-sovereign identity that's trying to be uh, kind of formalized of what that means or the idea of contextual integrity being formalized. Uh, so again, it's being put out there, but I don't know that there's per se a official standard that's being controlled by a standards organization saying this is the way we're going to do it moving forward. But I think we're moving towards that, that eventually we'll see that start to stand up. This is kind of being done from the approach of solving specific problems. And out of that, I think we're going to take the technology to solve a problem and then begin to develop a standard around that. It's kind of backwards, but that's typically what drives it. For example, trying to use digital identities with uh, contact tracing in the pandemic we face now. Let's explore that some. I mean, that's certainly the situation we find ourselves has uh, brought this issue to the fore and and, uh, brought it to the the top of mind for a lot of people. What is your take on that? Where do you suppose we stand with the the various uh, attempts at contact tracing that have been implemented? As expected, there's two sides to this coin. It has positive implications and negative ones. On the positive side, we see how it's really being used in kind of an anonymous way. For example, the CDC has been using phone location data to get really valuable information, right? They're able to determine, are there areas that are drawing crowds that may be a threat to health? In fact, there was once in New York City, they found that there was a large crowd gathering at Brooklyn's Prospect Park. So the authorities took that information, they went out there, they began to post warnings in the area and to monitor it to discourage people from doing that. So that's a positive way. And they can also see when when people issue or when governments issue shelter-in-place orders, how effective is it? Are people really staying sheltered in place or a lot of people moving around? So they get that kind of information, but that's kind of anonymous. There's nobody being singled out here. On the negative side, we begun to see this idea of contract tracing, these applications that will help us to share information to those who may become infected and so they can monitor themselves better or seek help if, if they need be. There's lots of these contact tracing apps that are being developed, but there's a, immediately with them, there becomes privacy concerns. North Dakota's contract tracing app, the CARE-19, it was recently discovered that they were actually sending location and advertising data to third parties. Uh, the same type of data that's often used by Facebook and other organizations to be able to, you know, kind of figure out who you are and to throw those ads in front of you based on things that you look at. They were sending that kind of information off. And so now you're like, whoa, wait a minute. This information that I'm trying to use from a health perspective could be misused in a different way. And, and I suppose, I mean, that really speaks to some of the big picture issues here, which is that when it comes to these things, when it comes to digital identities, you really have to establish trust with the people who are using it. And that's the key. I think one of the things that was being done, I know that uh, the UK is looking at 
setting a standard for this to create a contact tracing app. And they found out in their study that they had to get at least 56% of their citizens that would actually download and use a contact tracing app for it to even be effective. And they're setting a goal for 80%, which is huge. But if you don't break the trust, people aren't going to use that app if you don't trust it. And if not enough people use it, then it really is ineffective. All right, Joe, uh, what do you think? It's a good interview, Dave. I enjoyed that one a lot, actually. One of the things that pops out immediately is at the beginning of the interview, he says, we have too many digital identities, right? If you think about it, that's right. Every place that you have a username and a password, that's kind of a digital identity. I have over 200 of these in my password manager. Well, it's yeah. a lot. Yeah. The solution he's talking about, I, I don't think that having the option of doing that is necessarily a bad thing. Yes, I think we need a way of having some kind of provable, demonstrable digital identity. But at the same time, I don't want that to be my only option, right? Hmm. I want to be able to go to a website and go, I just want to sign up for an account. Here's a username and password that I'm going to use to access your account. I don't want you to have access to any portion of my official digital identity. One of the last things I want is to be accurately identified across all of my internet activity. I just don't think that's Hmm. a good idea. And you're right about Facebook on that on that topic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't trust them to be the custodian of my identity, and nobody should. Um, <laughs> I don't know what company I would trust with that, which is why I like the idea of being the custodian of my own digital identity. And using blockchain is a great way to do that. I would like to know if there are aspects of this that can change, if there's a way for me to change my digital identity on that blockchain to remove things. One of the drawbacks of blockchain is it tends to be immutable. That's either a drawback or a strength. It can be either depending on what the situation is. But is there a way for me to expire an old identity or an old piece of identity information on that blockchain and then build new identity information onto it? I'd like to know the answer to that. Trust is a big deal in these identity management systems. Do we trust the people that are putting these together? Like I said earlier, no, I would never trust Facebook to do this. When you start talking about the contact tracing app in North Dakota that was actually selling data, and that's a huge breach of trust. We're not supposed to be doing that for these things. Also, there's the huge potential for misuse. One of the things he said was there were uh, the contact tracing app was noticing that there was a large collection of people in a certain place. You know, that's great in time of pandemic, but what about when it's not in time of pandemic? That is not something I want the government to have the ability to to do. Mm-hmm. Interesting for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think a point for me is, is kind of what you bring out here, which is that there are good and bad sides to all this. Oh, yeah, it absolutely. has its utility, but there's the downside too. And there's a real tension between those two things. Mm-hmm. And that's that's got to be reconciled probably per individual. I mean, you have to decide what you're willing to do and, and how you're willing to do it. Uh, you know, the example you give of going to pick up a six-pack of beer is a great example. When I walk in, I mean, this doesn't happen to me anymore, right? <laughs> but when I, <laughs> when I go to pick up a six-pack of beer and the guy goes, let me see your ID, I hand him my ID, right? But right. he doesn't need all the information on my ID. He doesn't even need my birth date. The only piece of information he needs is, is Joe legally allowed to buy beer? That's it. Then it would be great to have a way where I could demonstrate that without having to provide all the other information. Right. All right. Well, our thanks to Bruce Esposito for joining us. Uh, Really interesting conversation. We appreciate him taking the time for us. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, Know Before. They are the social engineering experts and the pioneers of new school security awareness training. Be sure to take advantage of their free phishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com slash fishtest. Think of Know Before for your security training. 
That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.